Matthew 27, verse 32. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel? Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded of his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this is the Son of God. Thanks, Stuart. Let's pray, guys. No problem. <laughs> Father, we ask that tonight your word would awaken faith, it would open eyes, it would soften hearts, and it would kill us. Kill us in our story that we can live in yours. And I also want to pray for John Coer and any other of the miserable students who are presently serving in the dining room and not able to join us. Bless them tonight, Father. Amen. How to include those exiled people, so to speak. Um, okay, so here we are at what I would call the climax of God's story. And we're yet just a little bit past the middle. So the climax comes very forcefully, and then what we're going to see is the rest of the story is exactly where we are. So, and of course, you guys are looking at the crucifixion, very well-known passage, and as I heard Stuart read I was sitting there going, man, I'm not talking about that, I'm not talking about that, I'm not talking about that. There's so much packed in this passage that JC and I could just tag team this and do it for like two, three, four months, seriously. But we won't, because we're trying to progress through God's story. So I hope to pick out one particular aspect here and move the story forward, and namely that is this, that at the cross... We see God's perfect story. Not an accident, not a semi-good story, but his entire story reaches perfection right here at the cross. 
So it was late October 1991, and the fishing boat, the Andreas Gale, took off into the Atlantic Ocean. And you guys might know this story. They made a movie about it. It took off into the Atlantic Ocean and never returned. You see, from the west, there was this cold front blowing in from the Canadian border. And from the north, there was this low-pressure storm, uh, high-pressure storm system. And from the south, this low-pressure hurricane all coming together right where this little boat was sitting. And they collided, and when those three forces collide, what you get is called a perfect storm. Needless to say, the Andreas Gill was reduced to matchwood and never returned. That thing was obliterated in the presence of that perfect chaos and storm. The cross, in a similar way, is a perfect storm. You have these three forces colliding right at the cross. These three forces come, a little surprise here, they are three different stories lived by three different people, and they all come, and the cross is a clash of those three stories, those three viewpoints of life. You have Rome from the West with their cold front story. It says, we're the empire of the world, and we will keep peace at any cost. And they come into Jerusalem to hold peace. Then you have Israel. They're that high-pressure system coming down. And they're saying, we have a story, and it says that Rome is the enemy, and God will save us at all costs. And they were ready to do anything for that salvation, even if it meant punch the Caesar, Augustus himself, in the face. And then there was the surprising low-pressure system, the hurricane that stormed its way into the scene. And that is God's story. So you have Rome's story, Israel's story, God's story, and at the cross, they all intersect. So the cross is a clash of three stories. So I will take you guys briefly through what those stories say so that you can see how the cross is the perfect storm. And then... We'll look at why it's the perfect story, not the perfect storm. So let's start with God's story, because this is the most familiar. We'll break in with familiar ground here. You guys have been following the series. If not, I will reference some of the messages you can go back to and listen to on iTunes. But basically what we have is when you open the Bible, it says, In the beginning, God. His story starting right there, Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth. God is depicted as a king who creates a kingdom we call creation. And Eden was a special garden where he lived. And he set man, Adam, in that garden, Eden, and told the man, this is your mission. I almost said, this is your mission, bro. <laughs> oh my God, talks about me. Um, yeah, JC, police force. So God takes Adam and says, Adam, this is your mission. You're to cultivate Eden, take creation, and cultivate all of its riches and make this garden grow till the garden encloses the entire earth. God's story was that his dwelling place in Eden would encompass the whole globe. But 
Here comes the plot. Here comes the conflict. Adam saw God's story, saw God's plan, and said, I don't want that story. I want the serpents. And Adam rebelled against God and went to the serpent and ate from the tree of knowledge, thus saying, I want to live in the serpent's story. He gives me more freedom to do what I want to do. And hence, man was exiled, expelled from the garden, and then God wants to save humanity. We call this, we've been calling this restoration. God wants to bring man back to Eden where he was made to be. So when you become a Christian, you're not entering into some new invention of man. You're returning back to what God originated in Eden. We had fallen, we've been exiled, and God seeks to restore us back to Eden. So, here's his plan. I'm going to take Israel, this chosen people, and they're going to become my instrument to bring this message that I'm going to restore all of creation and every nation back to Eden. So Israel goes out. God does wonders amongst them. But, Israel like Adam, lives in the story of the serpent. They reject God's plan and story, and they do their own thing. So like Adam being exiled, expelled from the garden, Israel is exiled and expelled from their promised land, which, by the way, Ezekiel 5.5 says that land was to be the center of the earth. Not anymore. They're exiled. And so now we come to Jesus, God's final plan that will work. He sends Jesus as the new Adam, the new Israel, to restore all of the nations and creation back to the Edenic state. So that's what Jesus comes. He comes as the king, as the story writer, as the author, and says, here it is. I am finishing the story, and restoration is going to happen. God's story. But Rome's story was not that story at all. Rome's story took an abrupt change in about 31 BC. So just before Jesus was born, Rome's story reached its climax. There was an emperor, or actually there was a a guy named Domitian, um, Octavian, my bad, Octavian. Octavian reached the throne of Rome, and he changed the entire system. You see, Rome used to be like America, where there's like a government and there's a lot of checks and balances and no one could have absolute authority. But Octavian changed all that. He declared that he has absolute authority. And he began to rule the entire empire, which stretched across the whole world, and became himself the king of the world. He ruled Rome with absolute authority. And catch this. There was rumor that his dad was somewhat divine. And so Octavian takes the name Augustus, which means magnificent one, and names himself Caesar Augustus, and then says, my dad actually was a god. It's true. The rumors are true. And I'm his son. (laughs) So I am the son of God. 
And he began to propagate this throughout the empire. It spread like good news that we now have an emperor, a worldwide king, and the empire has reached its climax. This is everything the empire was waiting for. Peace, prosperity, and the words are brought everywhere. Statues are erected of this emperor, and the, on all the statues it was inscribed something to this effect. It would say something like, Good news, we have an emperor. Justice, peace, security, and prosperity are ours forever. The Son of God has become king of the world. That's the Roman story happening worldwide at the moment Jesus is here. The Son of God, the emperor, is king of the world. He's brought peace, prosperity. You know what the Roman story says? It says, in our Caesar Augustus, in our grand empire, humanity has been restored to Eden. We, Rome, is Eden. Good news to all. That was Rome. And this story comes to Israel because... I don't like the dry hair. This story comes to Israel because Rome was in a big shortage of grain, overpopulated, underemployed. Egypt had all the grain. So to get up to Rome, they didn't want to go through the water because pirates would invade the ships and take all the grain. So to get up to Rome, they needed Israel, the land bridge between Egypt and Rome. So to bring the grain up to Rome... Israel was an important bridge to cross. So Pontius Pilate was sent in this area and said, you keep peace here at all costs, even if it means crucifying somebody. So that's his job. Peace at all costs. And now we look finally at Israel's story. Now, what's Israel about at this time? Rome thinks they're the restored Eden God is up to this plan of restoring all nations to a different kind of Eden, a better one than Rome, where half the population was slaves anyways. Um, Israel's story said this. We like God's story, because we're his chosen people, of course, um, but we kind of have our own version of it. You see, to Israel, they incorporated the serpent story a little bit. And have their own interpretation of what God was up to. Oh yeah, God's up to restoring the world. But he's going to restore us and make us a special kings. And everybody else is going to be crushed and slaughtered. And then we'll be back to Eden. Yes, that's our story. To Israel, the world had not reached Eden yet. Because of Rome. To them, Rome was just like Pharaoh. It was just like Egypt. Remember how Egypt oppressed Israel, kept them in slavery... Remember that? And Moses came and delivered them. God did it through Moses. Uh, they saw Rome the same way. We're oppressed. We need freedom. We're not doing anything. God's going to restore the world through us. Therefore, um, we're awaiting a new Moses to come get us, to come save us, to come lead us into a new exodus where we can beat Rome up like Egypt and develop a new kingdom. So, guess what they waited for? Messiah, that's their word. That's the deliverer. Messiah was to be like Moses or like David. He's to be like Moses in that he beats up Rome like Moses beat up Egypt and he leads them into their promised land, 
Eden would come back and Israel would be the center of it. They also waited for Messiah like David. Why David? Because David killed the giant Goliath, so the Messiah is going to come kill the giant Rome. David established the kingdom of Israel, so this Messiah is going to establish a new kingdom for Israel. This is their story. Rome is the great evil. And once they're defeated, our new Messiah will establish a new kingdom and we will be Eden once again. The world restored because of us. So only once Rome is removed can Israel take a claim upon Rome's claim. What did Rome claim? Peace and prosperity through us. We are the government. But Israel held this promise. That when Messiah comes, this is what will happen. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forever. God will do this. That's Isaiah. You guys know from Christmas. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. And when Rome is removed, that will happen. So here we have these three stories clashing. And the aftermath of this perfect storm is Jesus on the cross. Peace at all costs, Rome says. Israel, um, we hate Rome. This pretend Messiah Jesus doesn't want to beat up Rome. So kill him before Rome kills us. And God's story, I sent him to restore the world. So how does all these three intersecting and putting Jesus on the cross work? To be sure, Rome and Israel might have thought that they were living their own story that they were penning, but they weren't. They were actually living the serpent story, just like Adam, just like everybody. See, to God, Rome was not the great, the great enemy. Israel thought they were. But to God, to Jesus, the great enemy was the power behind Rome. The power that's pushing Rome to do what it's doing. To God, it's not flesh and blood. It's not Rome, but it's the principalities, the spiritual forces of darkness. Ephesians 6. That is the real enemy and it's pushing Rome. So to Jesus, the real enemy is a serpent who's writing and pushing Rome's story upon the whole earth. And then to Israel, they're no different than Rome. They're living the same story, just with different terms. And Jesus was um, abundantly clear and bluntly almost rude when he told this to Israel. Do you know where that was? In Matthew 23, he gives a sermon to them. And at the end, he tells them, "You, you, (laughs) You are the offspring of the serpent. You are living the serpent story, he says. Matthew 23, verse 33. And so what we see is that on the cross, it momentarily appears that Jesus is the victim of Rome and Israel's plan. They put him on the cross. It momentarily appears that that Jesus suffers under Rome and Israel's story. 
it momentarily appears that the serpent is winning. He got the Son of God up on the cross. But that momentary appearance is dead wrong. The cross is not the convergence of three stories creating the serpent's perfect storm that finally got God's story dead and the serpent wins. It's not a perfect storm. I told you it was, but it's not. It appeared to be that way. It was a perfect story. The cross isn't the crisis or the oh well moment, the tragedy of a perfect storm. The cross was the climax of God's perfect story. God orchestrated both of Rome and Israel's stories to be in His story, and He used them to craft the perfect story where Jesus hangs as the climax to save the nations and bring them back to Himself. So, though the serpent's hand was on the pen of Rome and Israel and got Jesus to the cross, what he actually figured out was that he was writing the very script God already wrote. <laughs> the serpent was actually in God's story. And this is, a, this is like, it's kind of like um, Inception. It's a story within a story. And Rome and Israel and the serpent had no idea that they were... I should have just retitled this whole message to Inception. That would have been better. <laughs> I really should have. That was good. Maybe next time. So, but here's how we know this, guys. Here's how we know that the cross is God's perfect story. That he didn't want it any other way. It wasn't that some perfect storm happened out of his control. And, oh, no, great. He's on the cross. What do we do? This was his, his story couldn't have been better. It's exactly as planned. We know that. Spoiler alert, if you don't know the story, careful. We know that because of what happens in the next chapter. Jesus raises from the dead. The resurrection tells us that the cross was God's perfect story. It's like any story. You've got the climax. Something terrible happens to our hero. Oh no, he's never going to get out of it. And then all of a sudden, there's that surprise event, that turn of events. And that's the resurrection. Oh, we lost. The serpent wins. He's on the cross. He's dead. Three days later, he's back. And he isn't... Oh, it really hurt in there, but I'm back. He came back walking through walls, flying through the sky. He came back in the restored Edenic body that we will inherit. Message being, those who put their faith in me will be just like me. You'll be restored to this body that you're meant to have. This is God's perfect story. We have, if you will, two hints right before this happens to know that as he gets to the cross, the, the attentive reader knows this is going good. It might look bleak. It might momentarily appear like the serpent's winning. But this is, this is really good. So this is how we know. There's two hints. Um, it comes from two passages in two gardens. Whoa. The first is Genesis 3.15. If you're not familiar, I'd highly suggest you look at it. Genesis 
So, what we have in the first garden, we have Adam in Eden. And there, the serpent momentarily gains victory over Adam, right? Adam rejects God's story, adopts the serpent's story, and then everything comes crashing down. God says, rebellion in my kingdom! And he can't put up with treacherous people, so they're exiled from Eden, because that's not what Eden is. There's no rebellion there. And right as that's about to happen, in the aftermath of... Raphne's about to exile him. What am I saying? In the aftermath of Adam's rebellion, God shows up and announces how his story is going to end right off the bat. He says, this looks bad. The serpent's winning right now, but this is how it's going to end, Adam, so that you know and all your offspring know, you can still join it. I'm letting you know how it's going to end. So Genesis 3.15 is the summation of the story. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity, that's like conflict, that's fighting, between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve. Between your offspring, the little babies, that's the people of the serpent, those who follow the serpent's story, that's the offspring of the serpent, and between her offspring, that's God's people who follow his story. And now this is what's going to happen. So God says there's going to be two characters in my story. There's going to be people of the serpent's story, people of my story, serpent woman, and they are going to be in conflict, but at the very end, this is what's going to happen, the end of 3.15. It says that he... He, this is somebody from the woman's side, the God's story side. He shall bruise the serpent's head and the serpent shall bruise his heel. I like the word crush better. I'll give you the New King James point tonight. Just tonight. Higher authority, whatever. Or standard, as he said. Higher standard. Crushed. God told him, listen, there's somebody in my story who's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to crush the serpent's story. In doing so, his heel will be bruised. So the point of the cross is this is God's perfect story because that's what he said. By bruising the heel, the serpent will be crushed. Jesus on the cross is bruised, but the serpent's ultimately crushed because Jesus takes death and sin hand in hand he basically lets Satan shoot the sharpest arrow at him the hardest arrow he has he takes the hit, dies, comes back to life so if Satan's used his best weapon what left does he have? and Jesus already took it Satan's powerless that's how he kills death in death by dying he kills death so that's the message Adam and Eden, but their second hint before this happens is Jesus in Gethsemane. And you can stay in your neighborhood, Matthew 26. This is a repeat, if you will, of Adam and Eden. Adam rejected God's story, took the serpent's story. Everything went downhill. Jesus comes to this new garden, Gethsemane, as the new Adam. That Adam failed. Rebelling is God's story. This Adam, Jesus, is not going to do that. And so while he's wrestling in conflict between tree of knowledge, tree of life, um, don't go to the cross, go to the cross, serpent story, God's story, while he's wrestling, he sits and prays, and he says in verse 39 of Matthew 26, says, going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father... 
If it be possible, let this cup, let your perfect story pass from me. Nevertheless, this is where Adam failed. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Adam said, what I will, I'll take your story, serpent. Treat knowledge eaten. Jesus, though, not my story, not the serpent story. I want God's perfect story to come upon me, even if that leads me to the cross. Whatever that means, I'm in it. Tree of life. And ironically, when Jesus chooses tree of life, he hangs on the tree of death so that we can come to the tree of life. So, two atoms, two gardens, one failure, one victory, we see that this is indeed God's perfect story. Jesus right there submits, I'm in God's story. So what happens to me, this is perfect. The cross is not a perfect storm. It is indeed God's perfect story. But now, we come to our critical question. Okay, so... Jesus on the cross is God's perfect story. But why? Why did God see killing his son as the perfect way to resolve the story? I think we find our answer in 2746. And literally, this is the only verse we're looking at, so... 2746. Let's start in 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Loma Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With that statement says, is that Jesus died to be exiled so that he can lead the exiles back to Eden. You have this mass of humanity, every nation and creation itself, exiled from Eden, and Jesus as the new Adam takes the exile himself to go get the exiles. He doesn't just call them from a distance, he becomes one with us. Forsaken by the Father, if you will. Exiled from His presence in Eden. And there He experiences exile. He died to bring exiles back to Eden. That's why death. That's why the cross is the perfect story. And there's two ways that this is clear here. First, Jesus is embodying the exile. He's embodying it. Remember I said I'm the temple? Remember what happened to the temple in the exile? Temple destroyed, demolished. Jesus on the cross, demolished. Temple destroyed. Exile happening. Not only that, but forsaken by God is how Israel describes their exile experience. I'm going to quote you two psalms. Listen. Psalm 74.1. These are all reflecting on the exile. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Doesn't that sound like, why have you forsaken us? 
Psalm 89.46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Again, the question, why, why are you forsaking us? That's the question of exile. And so, since sin, which we define as rebellion against God's kingship, rebellion against his story, since sin is the reason exile happened to both Adam, us, Israel, sin has to be conquered to stop the exile. Sin's the problem. It's what causes it. Sin has to be done away with. And so as Jesus takes the sin upon himself, he's taking the exile upon himself. And God has to, like Adam and Israel, cast them from his special presence. Cast them from his land. And so Jesus embodies it to become entering into the exile with us. That he can from there lead us to Eden. So here's the picture. Cross is the exile. What we'll see next time, resurrection, is the exodus. It's the new exodus. Exiled with us, resurrection, booyah, we win. (laughs) And leading us to the new Eden, to restoration. So he embodies the exile. Then second, Jesus declares... He declares that his death is for the restoration of all nations. By saying, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? That is another way of saying, I am restoring the nations to myself. (laughs) That's quite a jump, Brandon. Not even one word is shared in both those sentences. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm dying to restore the nations to God. It's there. Not apparently in our English, but it's there. This is how. Israel did not have the benefit of what we have. Actually, it's probably better because they knew their Bibles better, but they didn't have things like chapters and verses in their Bible. You know, it didn't say Psalm 80. So often what would happen is if you're referring to another passage, you couldn't just say, you're hanging there. Psalm 22, read it. Bye. You would quote the first line of the passage you want the people to think of. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying what we would say, read Psalm 22. Because that's the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So then, with, and by the way, like we would have to go read it to know what it all says. But the hearers there. They knew. They knew their Bible so well. They knew exactly what Psalm 22 would say. They knew what Jesus was saying in that one phrase. He was encompassing the whole message of Psalm 22. What's the message of Psalm 22? It's essentially this. It's a Psalm of David. It was written probably while David was, believe it or not, in exile himself. David was running from King Saul for his life. He was abandoned from the kingdom. He was running through all these different nations. He was exiled, like Jesus is here. And the message of Psalm 22 says, God, why am I exiled? Why am I suffering? But you will vindicate me. You will save me from this. Maybe overtones of the resurrection. That's his vindication. That's his salvation. But then at the very end of the psalm is the key point. It's Psalm 22, verse 27. And it says, the ends of the earth, it's every nation, shall remember and return to the Lord, and all the families of the nations 
shall worship before God. Because kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Concludes with all the nations are coming back to God to worship because God is king of the nations. So now do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's saying cryptically what I'm doing is bringing all the nations back to Eden. This is indeed the perfect story, not the perfect storm. And then he breathes his last, and he's gone. Until next passage, of course. So, this is how I want to conclude this. We must check with ourselves. Are we living God's story like Jesus did? Are we participating in the perfect story? Or are we more like Rome and Israel? Rome just kind of has the worldly way. We're, we're it. We're cultivating perfect Eden with all of our technology. Apple's is the savior of the world. Don't lie. You thought it. <laughs> um, Israel's got kind of the blend. They're kind of like, we got God's story and the serpent story. We like what it's all going to. We like the heaven thing. But we're going to do it our way. Both of them, Jesus said, your serpent story. The story of God, the perfect story of God, is a picture of a tree of life student in the garden of Gethsemane on his face saying, what come, I don't know, but I want to live, I want you to be the author of my life, I want to live in that perfect story. Whatever you take me, wherever I go, whatever it means I must live like or look like, that's what I want. Even if it means I go to the cross. Which, by the way, Christian, if you are in a, if you bear that name Christian, you're to live in this perfect story. If you're to live in this perfect story, you're to go to the cross. I don't mean you're going to die for your sins. That's stupid. Of course you can't. But you must die because no, that's what Jesus said it this way. Matthew 16, 24, you guys know this one. He said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, live in my story. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, you must die to your story, give the pen up, throw it in the trash, crumple up the paper, burn it, and say, I'm in God's. I'm a character in yours now. That's dying. And that's where saying yes to God's perfect story takes you, is to the cross where you die to your story so that you can live in his story. And the only way that we will become those who are bringing the nations to restoration with God, the only way we will do that is if we stop telling the story and start living the story. Living the story means dying in your story. It means taking your cross. It's a tree of life. Sometimes we don't like the implications that living for Jesus implies. We don't like that it might make people think differently. It might be hard to say no to fruit from the tree of knowledge and other sin. It might be even scary to say, not my will, but your will be done. Not my story, but your story be told. But if you don't, 
you aren't living in God's perfect story. You're living Genesis 3.15 on the wrong end. You're living the part that says, I will crush the head of the serpent. I will crush the head of those who don't live in my perfect story. So if I can urge you guys, die in your story. Put yourself to death so that you can live in God's perfect story. And as we do that, we are sharing the message of Jesus that you will see people restored to God. They will see a different story in your life. You're not the one formed by culture stories like some like little numb school walking around. You actually have purpose. You have mission. You've got aim in life. And people will see God for you. Because you're not just telling them the story. You're living the story. Because you put yourself to death in your story a long time ago. And you're living now in Christ's. So, as I give that hard message, realize though, I'm not calling you to die in a perfect storm. That's stupid. I'm calling you to die in a perfect story. That's going to have far-reaching effects to the end of the earth. That's going to have far-reaching effects, greater than what the military promises. You know, be all you can be. We're helping the world. You know, they always just show you like how our military saves the world. And everyone's like, I want to be part of something bigger than myself. Join the army. Nothing wrong if you want to join the army. Great. Thank you. Somebody has to serve our country. But don't look for that as the answer. God has a story bigger than our army is ever going to reach. And it starts with us saying, die. Die in yours so that you can live in his. That's when you're going to find that purpose. That's when you're going to find life bigger than self that's when your Christianity is going to make sense. So, Father, I ask that you would give us grace tonight, the ability to say, not my story be done, but yours be done. That you'd bring the sword and thrust us through. That we may now live anew in your perfect story. Um, Come and work in us, we pray. So, Spirit of living God, fall afresh on us tonight. Melt us, mold us, kill us that you may fill us and use us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.